1: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. What can we learn about the decline of the West from the fall of the Roman Empire? Was decline inevitable for Rome and is it inevitable for us too? Historian Peter Heather is the co-author of Why Empires Fall, a new book exploring the parallels between the 5th century and the 21st. He joined Luke Naylor perrett to explore what new lessons we can learn from ancient history. So we're going to go very broad and then, and then key into
2: some topic, some, some sort of specific topics, if that's okay. So let's just start with the basic, which is what is the West in, in your eyes, right? What, how do you define that?
0: In the book, we define it as the grouping of developed, more or less liberal, democratic, Countries that hashed out a kind of set of financial and, in some senses, diplomatic rules at the end of World War II and into the early 1950s, the club of European, North American nations, with some additions that are not really in the West at all, like Australia and Japan. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> uh, as it were, it's uh, it's it's a term of art. They're mostly in the West if you're looking from the East, but not quite all. But it, it's basically the the, the self-appointed uh, grouping to which we belong has broadly run at least the non-communist world and the way that it operates in international terms, both diplomatically and economically, since 1945.
2: Because that that's the sort of sense I, that I get. Right, there's there's moments within this period even where you have the the U.S. versus the UK and France and Suez and, and various decolonization efforts. The, the West is very intangible until you define it against something, right? Which also goes to stand for the Roman example later on,
0: right? Certainly, you know, there are internal tensions within the club of Western nations, but actually there are a set of institutions too that they they sign up to that are, that are basically defined at the, the Bretton Woods meetings um, in 1944 and then put into action as the UN, the IMF, et cetera, et cetera, NATO, CETO as well, when it takes on a military connotation. And obviously in part, those institutions were, uh, or if quickly evolved to be, well, they're they're both in response to the authoritarianism that was Nazi Germany, uh, but also of course, in response to the uh, non-Western communist world as well. But it has, in a sense, a very concrete institutional form. Surprisingly concrete when you, you actually give it a kick,
2: I think. We're going to give it a kick later, I promise. So <laughs> I get the sense that there's one narrative in particular in the book that you wanted to avoid, right? The Fall of Rome is is a, a morality tale that's told by Steve Bannon, Pat Buchanan, Farage, Johnson, Ferguson. Like, How are you not joining that lovely bunch, right? What's the big anti-narrative that you're, you're pushing against? Before we go into actually what, what you do think.
0: They're still holding on to a kind of uh, sub-Gibbon, sub-Edward Gibbon type narrative uh, that Rome is a kind of proxy for the West, as in everything that's good and everything that's civilised, and that there is or there are outside forces that aren't good, barbarians or whatever, who are looking to bring this down, and that the... Roman Empire failed to defend itself, uh, or to carry on defending itself against these forces of chaos, and that the modern West is threatened by the same kind of forces of chaos. That's, that's the sort of uh, narrative trope that's floating through those different commentators that you were talking about. And
2: the forces of chaos are embodied specifically in, I get the impression that it's, it's often refugees,
0: migrants, the sort of the other, right? It is. Steve Bannon gives it an extra nasty twist in wanting it to be Muslim immigrants and Muslim referees, refugees in particular. Obviously, after 9-11, that was very firmly in the minds of uh, American consciousnesses for, for obvious and perfectly understandable reasons. But yeah, it is, it's the, the rest of the other that's on the move, a mixture of refugees and migrants and whatever. Yes, absolutely.
2: Okay, so, so leaving that, that lovely bunch aside, um, how what's the sort of modern consensus as to why the Roman Empire fell, right? What are, the, what are the key factors? I think you mentioned a couple that we should know about, and this is you know, obviously a super simple question, why did Rome fall? But, but obviously, uh, simplicity aside.
0: Yeah, uh, you won't get one answer um, from modern commentators, uh, but uh, you will get people floating around with the same kind of major factors. Um, And I I think there are sort of three, really. Uh, First of all, the the sort of general strategic position of the empire is weakened by the rise of Persia to peer superpower status in the third century. A new Persian dynasty comes along, they do something clever in terms of mobilising resources Quite what that was is hard to know because uh, the Persian court sources uh, disappear in the Middle Ages because that world is swallowed up by Islam and Muslim commentators of no interest in writing out the court histories of pre, uh, pre-Muslim rulers of Persia. So we just get some images and some thoughts. But anyway, Persia uh, reconfigures itself and is a real peer superpower polity to the Roman world from the 3rd century onwards. That's the first factor. second factor is internal division within the Roman system, uh, measured, I think, in two ways. One, that we see the emergence of a Roman Empire from about 300 onwards that tends to have more than one ruler. It's not quite systematised until the end of the 4th century, but there's usually more than one uh, emperor from about 300 onwards and there had been through the latter part of the third century as well. And whenever someone tried to run the empire just as a sole ruler, it didn't tend to work. So we've got two uh, centers of political power. They tend to squabble and they will occasionally fight. We also see tensions between some provincial uh, Roman aristocracies and the imperial center. So there's sort of, there's two centres of power. There's also centrifugal tension within the Roman system, um, but those are two types of internal uh, factor. And then the third factor is that we see on Rome's European frontiers this time, the emergence of uh, larger and more formidable barbarian, for want of a better word, largely Germanic-speaking, Germanic-dominated confederations. So the, the, The world of very small tribes, for want of a better word, tribe is a horrible word. It means absolutely nothing. But anyway, we just gloss it to mean a socio-political unit that's not very big. (laughs) uh, The world of Tacitus, which, you know, in Tacitus, what's now Germany, Benelux and Czechoslovakia and Western Poland be covered by about 60 of these units. They're tiny. They're really not very big. Uh, that gives way to a smaller number of much larger confederations in the late Roman period. So that's also shifting the power balance. Uh, People are playing around. I think all serious contributions on why the Roman system starts to unravel are playing around with those factors. Rise of Persia, the new, larger, more coherent confederations on Rome's Rhine and Danube European frontiers, and then uh, these uh, internal divisions and internal tensions within the system—an incredibly succinct answer for what is not a, uh, an incredibly
2: succinct um, question. So, um, so I mean, many years just, thinking about this stuff. <laughs> I'm sure every minute interesting. Um, so, so before we dig into the specifics, let's let's just do one last big, broad question, and then we can we can play around. Which is, this book, you know, deliberately compares the the Rome Roman Empire and, and the West Empire. What are, what are the biggest elements of, of Rome's fall that we can learn from? Um, two parallels sort of jump out in particular, but maybe just the simplest through lines that we can grab onto. The book
0: has a very simple answer or a very simple hypothesis that it's pushing. And that is that these big imperial systems, and you should understand empires as systems. They're things that are made up of moving parts. They're not a thing that just comes into being and is then the same. Uh, they are evolving, moving systems, uh, is that these big systems actually generate forces by the way that they work, which tend to counteract against the continued existence of those systems. That is that is the very simple through line of the book. So, for instance, if we just look at those uh, Roman factors that we were talking about a minute ago, the new Persian dynasty is uniting the Near East against Roman imperial aggression and expansion. The new confederations that emerge uh, on Rome's European frontiers, they're a kind of very early example of globalization where you've got local elites responding to both the opportunities and dangers of living next to the Roman empire to consolidate a larger form of regional power than anyone had done before. And the internal system, the internal divisions within the Roman system that emerge in the late Roman period are in a sense reflecting the maturity of the Roman system. So, you know, the reason that we get restive provincial elites in the late Roman period is not that they want to run off and be independent, is is that they are fully paid up Romans. They, you know, they learn Latin, they live in villas, they go to the bars, they wear togas, They're fully fledged Roman citizens and they are demanding an equal share in the way that the imperial system is run. Uh, It's a bit like the uh, colonial Americans revolting against British rule that wasn't treating them equally. In this case, the Roman system does treat them more equally. But there is, you know, you're trying to combine this huge territory that runs from Hadrian's Wall to the Euphrates. It is just vast. You know, it's the biggest state Western Eurasia has ever seen. And you're trying to keep all the kind of fully now romanized elites that run the localities within that vast space. You're trying to keep them happy and you're trying to integrate them into the system and there are tensions. But that's you know, in a sense, it's a success story. You know, the Britons have stopped painting themselves blue. They're now living in villas and speaking Latin, and they want to be equal Romans in the Roman imperial system. So all of those factors are, in a sense, uh, knock-on effects of the way the system has successfully run for 400 years in the Roman case. So that, that's what we mean by that hypothesis that's running through. You
2: mentioned territory just there, and I think that the your discussion of periphery is so interesting. Which is to say that, you know, my my instinct when I, when I saw this comparison was, was, you know, you could travel at a horse and cart pace, you know, as, a, as a, a, a number of horses at max back in the Roman days, whereas nowadays you have globalization at a, an insane scale. But what you, what you talk about really interesting is that the periphery is remarkably similar in its rules nowadays, or during the imperial system in, in India, say, and in Rome. Could you just dig into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, there are kind, of, kind of inner and outer peripheries, and there are provinces. It's a kind of you've got the imperial centre and then it's like as though you've got three layers uh, revolving around it. You've got the places that will evolve into fully, more or less fully equal parts of the system. So that's the the provinces in the Roman case, everywhere that was conquered, or places like Australia, New Zealand, America, in the case of European empires. Uh, and then of course, they evolve when America becomes the centre after 1945. But that's, you know, That's the system evolving. So you've got provinces, then you've got the kind of inner periphery, which is in a very tight set of economic relationships and political relationships. It's both together with the imperial system. And that's where you see the the transformations happen fastest. But in some ways, the, the sort of really interesting bit is the kind of outer periphery, beyond the areas that are in very immediate day-to-day economic and political contact with the imperial system, uh, but which are nonetheless, over the longer term, transformed by their relationships with the system. Um, And they they have the capacity really to derail the system because they're not part of it. Uh, The empires can usually keep fairly strong political, diplomatic and military control of the inner periphery. But the outer periphery, when you start to generate quite... Uh, powerful forces there—they're beyond immediate control, and um, interesting things can start to happen. What I find so interesting there, um, both in in Rome and in
2: sort of say the, the British Empire, is that you know you can go to the south of the Arabian Peninsula faster than you can get to some parts of you know, the United States, um, just because of the way that the transport links work, you can get to parts of, of India. And it's, it's a nice reminder when people say, Oh, well, well we, we built the railways. And it's like, yes, but we built the railways from the minerals to the ports to get
0: home. It, it is very nice. Uh, you, you know, and, uh, in the Roman case, it, it's a fairly straightforward uh, equation between distance and actual time that it takes to get from a place to, you know, one place to another, you're basically going straight lines by land. But uh, when you get into these European empires, it is actually where the railways are and where the seaports are, because you're connecting railways from interior to ports and then ports onto ships and to the imperial centers, whichever the imperial center is that you're talking about. So you have to kind of uh, refigure your head and how you look at, uh, uh, at maps. To, uh, and think of, think of rivers and uh, the big maritime lanes as kind of motorways, and then you're...
1: Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now, in hardback, ebook and audio. So from one refiguring to another,
2: sort of the neoliberal turn, the late stage capital turn, Reagan Thatcher feature quite heavily I think that that a lot of people when looking at the collapse of the West at least recently will will point to that moment. Are there any echoes going back to to Rome there sort of in terms of taxation and and, and things what's new about that? you speak about debt as a as a miracle to a disease. Could you just explain to what extent neoliberal late stage capitalism is at the heart of of Western collapse?
0: Well, it's at the heart of, is the rise of the periphery. And in a sense, that's the uh, other through line of the book, uh, is that uh, the old Gibbon model of decline followed by fall is actually missing the point, that these systems don't decline in absolute terms. I mean, they're still not, the West is still, Growing in absolute terms, for the most part. I mean, there are, there are obvious hiccups, and Britain might be a slight exception. We're yet to see whether, to whether, and to what extent recession uh, actually unfolds. But uh, but uh, you know, we're not in Rome's economic world. We're in a world of potential economic expansion, slow expansion, but still expansion. It's not really about decline or fall at the West. It's actually about the rise of the periphery. And this is, uh, you know, to put my cards on the table, and, you know, I've said this in many places, I'm not, uh, it's not something I'm coy about saying, what really changes the the tectonic plates of strategic power in uh, the Roman case is not what happens inside Rome. It's actually the rise of the periphery, both in terms of Persia, and then what happens on those European frontiers. That's what's really changing the ball game um, and to my mind, the uh, need for two centers of imperial control with all the problems that that generated within the Roman system that's generated by that that's caused by the rise of Persia. In other words, it's, it's an epiphenomenon. It's an effect. It's not a cause. There are other people who would violently disagree with that point of view. I hasten to add, but, uh, you know, to my mind, what's really going on is the rise of the periphery. And that's really what's going on in the modern world too. And that's why the neoliberal term under Thatcher and Reagan is so important because it frees up capital investment rules. And it means that Western capital can go looking for much bigger returns than it can find by the 1970s in the the already developed world. All the kind of productivity gains and uh, large growth rates that you'd seen since 1945, those are disappearing uh, in the West by the 1970s. The big profits are to be made by investing elsewhere. And that's what the, the Reagan and Thatcher era makes possible, that a flood, absolute flood of Western capital going elsewhere in search of bigger returns. Uh, and that's what really kickstarts what we understand and what we've lived through. Well, you're too young. I have lived through it. I was there before. <laughs> what we understand is globalization. <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen the world before globalization uh, and through it, uh, and it's not over yet. It's you know, we're, we're not at any kind of end point, but it is the rise of, well, you know uh, first of all it was asia um the asian tigers then it was china and now actually it's africa i mean the the the, the real thing in some ways is that the rise of china is yesterday's news uh, i think it's either six or seven sorry I've forgotten of the 10 fastest growing economies are african uh in the last year or so according to the imf and that's that's set to continue you know uh the rise of africa in addition to what's already happened in asia and brazil and you know the world is the world's uh the pattern of the world economy and product and its centers of productivity is changing in very dramatic ways the west is still getting fractionally wealthier but (laughs) you know the rest of the world is getting a lot wealthier and a lot quicker it's catching up in other words
2: you intimated that i was Younger. I mean, I'm, I'm 26 and and the thought that there was ever a social contract that functioned, especially in the UK, is, uh, you know, an anomaly to me. I mean, you really do paint a bleak picture in a few pages of just how, for want of a better word, screwed a lot of the West's models are. A lot of that social contract is. And to give one example, you say that, that, that someone who bought a house in the 1960s, a hundredfold increase. 20 to 30 percent of Western wealth will soon be in pension funds. There was a broken social contract, too, in Rome, and that was part of the, the fall. Could you explain to me the, the importance of that break? What happens when it breaks or what happens when it perceives to break? And sort of what, what are we facing?
0: It's all about whether the people who uh, control reasonable amounts of wealth feel that the political structures that exist Serve their interests reasonably or not. You know, there's there's no such thing as a perfect society. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure Homo sapiens sapiens were quarrelling with one another viciously back in the caves. You know, thirty thousand years ago. Uh, you know, it's it's part of our uh, rather predatory nature. Uh, we can do cooperation, but we can also do self-assertion. And it's very unclear where the balance between those two entirely essential evolutionary mechanisms uh, actually will fall at any point. But when you're looking at these kinds of societies, integration and their capacity to work on a large scale is all about the extent to which uh, the people who are controlling the substantial amounts of wealth... Uh, feel that their interests are being served well enough by cooperation to carry on paying into the system and to sustaining it. And we had a generation or so uh, in the West where that was certainly the case. It's now coming under stress, I think. Um, I hope you're not screwed. Um, My uh, younger son is 26, like you. Uh, My older one is 30. Uh, I hope very much that your generation is not screwed, but I can, you know, life is more difficult. Uh, it's more difficult than when I was 26. There are less opportunities around and there are more stresses and strains. And my frustration in part is the refusal of political discourse to address those big issues. I mean, there, there isn't any kind of magic silver bullet, but you're certainly not gonna get anywhere unless you actually talk about the big systemic problems that have emerged within the sort of Western model. And, uh, and that's really the kind of uh, clarion cry of the, the later chapters in the book. You can see the stresses and strains in the Western model, they're very visible. They do not have to lead to unravelling in the way that the Roman imperial system unravelled, but they need to be addressed and they need to be talked about.
2: So I hear your, your hope for not, not being screwed. I will just uh, quote you back a section from your book. Uh, rather grimly, Western Treasuries have reached the point that falling life expectancy would be considered good news. Uh, not great. Um, but okay, so so one of the things that Gibbon, and, and you mentioned Gibbon a, a few times, obviously as sort of a, a godfather of this debate, one of the things that he was very sort of notorious for for talking about his decadence, right? He he, uh, big big not fan of that. Um, but you know, and and, and obviously that has, that's fallen out of favour. But the, the sort of the Musk's and the bezoses of the world, compared to the sort of heliogabaluses of the Roman world, um or the sort of internecine signed Byzantine fights compared to say what's going on right now about the the debt ceiling, where it's just sort of these. Basically, do, do you see decadence either as a sort of sign of that breakdown, or or just a, is that just a sideshow?
0: I I myself would not understand it as a sideshow, because it's always been the you know there were staggeringly decadent Roman leaders at the time that the empire is being created. You know the the slew of wealth that came into Rome in that sort of crucial period between about well about seventy BC and. 50 AD or a little bit longer, you know, the amount of wealth that comes into Rome at that point is beyond belief. Uh, And you've got, uh, well, I don't, you'd have to toss up between Nero and Caligula as to who you thought was the, the sort of most extravagant and most decadent, but that doesn't bring the empire down. (laughs) The empire's got another 350 years in it and all the kind of, uh, Evidence for provincial developing prosperity, post dates all of that. You know, uh, if you look around at the kind of uh, staggering mansions that are created uh, at the time that the British Empire is stripping out all the wealth from India, or even later in the Victorian era when new fortunes are being made, that's decadence with a capital D. But it's not it's not affecting the system. So yes, I do see it as, as more of a sideshow. It is true, of course, that rich people are much harder to tax. It's always hard to get the uh, uh, effective rate of taxation on rich people up to the levels that poor old middle-class professionals pay on a regular basis because they can't get out of it. <laughs> you know, that's just uh, that. That's always true. But uh, I don't. I, I don't myself hold to the decadence argument. There are always rich people. There's always strands of what we would term corruption going on um, and you know nest uh, feathering of nests that's that's just a constant so yeah i do see it as more of a side
2: very fair enough and, and very good answer let's let's look at something else that's taking a little bit of um traction at the moment in the discourse which is Rome fell because of climate change, right? There was a slew of articles a couple of years ago. Um, it gets a bit of a mention in your, in your book as to sort of population movement. Um, I think Eric Klein has a brilliant book on the sort of Bronze Age collapse and the Sea Peoples as having this climate plus mass migration plus poor human planning. It's not, it's not huge in your book. Was that, was that deliberate? Do you, do you see this as separate to climate? Do you think this would happen external to, to climate change or, or, or is it all wrapped up?
0: I think the only bit of... Uh climate change that may have occurred is uh, a bit of a hot patch in the third quarter of the fourth century, which was drying up the steppe nomad grazing areas of the of the Great Eurasian Steppe, it seems. Um, that's uh, ice core evidence, um, strongly suggests that. Um, and that's kind of a crucial moment when the Huns kind of bang into these larger confederations that have grown up on the fringes of the Roman Empire and cause a generation or two of political chaos amongst them, which spills over onto Roman soil. So you can, I think, uh, make an argument that uh, a certain uh, temporary element of climate change had something to do with that particular political crisis. But I think this was a political crisis that was brewing. And my suspicion is that it affected the timing and not the nature. There's always, you know, there's always an element of contingency, which means that a crisis happens then, as opposed to then. Uh, but uh, I, I do see systemic pressures having built up there. So yeah, I, I don't see climate as massively pressing in the Roman case, nor in fact disease, although that case has also been made. You could, you can make it. Uh, it flies a bit better in relation to the unraveling of the eastern half of the Roman Empire in the late sixth and seventh centuries than it does certainly for the unraveling of the Western half and the Empire, because there's just no sign of any major demographic dislocation. It's there's nothing that's killing on the scale, say, of the Black Death um, in the fourth and fifth centuries, and no sign of any no one's talking about disease as a major problem. Uh, and even that sixth century plague it comes and goes and it was undoubtedly horrible but um there's not a lot that suggests that it's kind of black death level of mortality that it's generating Uh, and that being so as the broader evidence suggests the population would have recovered pretty quickly so those kind of modern concerns i don't think play out very well in relation to the very marginal within the, the, the roman crisis
2: so what you are saying is uh, and I think this is, this is a decent reminder, which is that if we fix climate change there are still there are still other issues going on. it might be a symptom make- Huge issues
0: yes uh, absolutely um, the biggest issue of all is of course the aging of Western populations and this is uh, i't I, I, I don't mean to screw the conversation off in a direction <laughs> you don't want to go, but uh, you know the, the thing that most startled me was the realization, uh, well, the twofold, it's the two stages of the demographic transition. So, uh, as late as about 1830, 50% of German children are dying in childhood. uh, And Germany is poorer than that is before industrialization, but still it's huge numbers. Um, And then within 30 years with inoculation, and better childhood care, pretty much all children are living. Uh, but there is a gap before people realise that all their children are alive and going to make it into adulthood. And so you have this sudden explosion where Europeans are breeding like rabbits and filling up the entire planet. You know, The, the population of Europe is normally about 16% of the planet. By 1900, it's 25%. <laughs> One in four people on the planet are of European descent, because of the sudden survival of all these children. You know, my grandfather who was born in about 1885, he's one of 11 children, and they all survived out of them. And, and you know, so it's the it's the absolute classic pattern. Yes, that, that's happening all over the place. And this is why, you know, America can be full of people of European descent in the 1920s and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, you know, that's, That's where all these Europeans have come from. But it then changes. And now, of all those developed nations, only uh, women in Iceland and in in Israel are having the 2.1 children that they need to have for a population to replace itself. Everybody else is way down. Germany is really low our birth rates are higher than Germany but ours are still only I think it's 1.6 is the average something like that and that means we're just not replacing um, the population and as it were all the gains in longevity up to 1945 are gained by better survival of children all the, the gains in longevity since 1945 are better care for old people which is great you know I'm 63 on Thursday (laughs) I like this story. This is a good story. I'm happy with this story. Uh, But uh, it does mean that our population is massively aging. uh, And uh, therefore, the ratio of working people to non-working people in the population is changing. And that pendulum is moving with unstoppable force. And that is the big issue that needs to be confronted. How do we look after uh, what do we think the pattern of life should be in a world where so many people are increasingly open?
2: Firstly, happy birthday for Thursday. Secondly, I think it's you know it was one of the most startling things growing up with China being this all scary one-child policy place, and now they're paying people to have kids. So it's it's not just the West; it is it is everywhere. But let's let's talk about China because I think you know you, you talked about the the sort of communist world versus the West, and and China is is now the kind of rising challenge to to the Western Empire as Persia perhaps perhaps was. And you say, you know, the, the sort of ideological tip for the West is, and I'll quote you, as humbling as this might be to Western countries, which not like long ago were telling China what to do, history suggests the alternative is far worse to basically being humble to China. Let's just let's just talk about that. Why why should we not go to war uh, to to sort of fight off that 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 superpower threat?
0: If you had a serious war with China it would be bound to go nuclear, and it would be catastrophic. is the is the simple answer, but but there's a, there's a more and and basically the the sort of moral story that comes out of the history of the Roman system is that the eastern half of the Roman Empire and Persia had this kind of you know love hate relationship going for. 200 years, they'd squabble a bit, they'd like to score points off one another. The best way to show yourself a really cool Roman emperor was to kind of pull one over the Persians and vice versa. But nonetheless, you knew that uh, you couldn't conquer the opponent and a full-on world war uh, not be a good idea. Uh, But that for various short-term contingent political reasons, that slips out of balance in the early seventh century, and we get 25 years of absolute world war, where it looks like Persia is going to conquer Constantinople at one point, they don't quite do it, but they bankrupt themselves trying. And then uh, Constantinople replies, by buying in lots of help from steppe nomads, bankrupting itself, uh, throws the Persians off Roman territory, but it is a kind of draw of exhaustion if you look at the you know the terms of the peace deal that's done at the end, it is a draw. So we both empires have bankrupted themselves in this desperate attempt to try and conquer the other or stop being conquered, and this is the creates the power vacuum in the Middle and Near East into which uh, Islam and Muhammad explodes. Uh, you know, so uh, within twenty years Persia has ceased to exist, and within thirty years Rome has lost all its. East Rome has lost all its richest provinces, you know. So, catastrophe follows uh, the uh, loss of the good sense to keep squabbles to a minimum and find ways to live uh, with uh, major power. Uh, so that's the moral story. But the more complicated answer, of course, is that we have a lot to be humble about. You know, uh, I think the the full story of how. Uh, the British Navy was employed to sink the Chinese Navy to allow our drug runners to sell opium into the Chinese market in the 19th century is still not actually acknowledged or recognized. <laughs> and and yet, yeah, uh, self-serving as chinese rhetoric might be they've got a bloody point frankly you know this is absolutely outrageous if you saw this happening now if if someone was doing this now uh uh, speeches in the houses of Parliament would be going ballistic but that's what we did twice so uh uh yeah i think you know facing up to the extent to which the the British Imperial Project was uh, about making money and didn't give a damn who it was being made and how, who it was being made from and how it was being made. Uh, that we're still not quite doing that, I think, to be absolutely honest. And I don't think you have to be woke in any way to be willing to say, you know, this is what happened. Likewise, the story of how the East India Company ransacked the wealth of India in the 17th and 18th centuries is uh, when i read about it properly which i confess was only a couple of years ago my jaw was hitting the floor it's just oh my god <laughs> yeah okay you can see why they might not like us very much <laughs> fair enough <laughs> if someone did that to us we'd be absolutely outraged anyway, uh but Uh, So yeah, we have some real uh, historical reasons to be humble, but then also uh, we now share a world which is so full of people and so full of the effects of uh, the way that people live at a higher level of consumption that we need to work with China on climate and on pollution. Uh, It it has to happen. So any serious uh, response to these kind of issues has to involve uh, China, and you're gonna have to talk to them as equals. You know, they, won't, they won't be willing not to be talked to as equals about that, and that's fair enough. So um, I think the what we're going for is kind of um, honest, humble, but firm, would be. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I've no desire to live uh, under the Chinese system. Uh, there's gonna be a Chinese translation of the book, amazingly. <laughs> But we're waiting at the moment to see what the list of edits are. We know that they're going to, uh, there are going to be some. Um, so we're waiting with bated breath to see what, they'll, what they will allow to be in there and what they're not going to be allowed to, to be in there. But we figured that if they're willing to take on the basic idea that overly aggressive empires sow the seeds of their own downfall, well, that's probably a big enough gain to put up with changes in detail. That's the calculation we've made.
2: Very exciting. Firstly, just horrible memories of reading Procopius and the Justinian Wars at university. Never again. Um, secondly, uh, you, there was one word. There was sort of a hint of, of something else in what you just said there, which is I don't want to be considered woke. And I think something when I was when I was reading the that very you know honest and, and really um, compelling case for humility and a sort of frank uh, you know politicians have to tell the truth to their citizenry and you know, unfortunately we live in a political climate in which literally just telling the truth about, uh, history has been branded woke, um, telling very basic facts about climate is exploded into a culture war and, uh, you know, (laughs) Is, is there an element of slight optimism in, in what you're talking about here? There's, there's another moment in which you said, you know, unlike Rome, the modern West will not have the option of recolonizing some foreign bread baskets. And I'm thinking, well, actually, there are some leaders at the moment in the West that would absolutely do that in, in a heartbeat. It may not work, but, um, uh, you know, are you, are you optimistic? And, and is, is my pessimism mean is, is where I'm going with that?
0: Uh, I think we're on a knife edge. I honestly do think we're on the knife edge. Um, you can see a path to a new is it, i mean there's got to be a new world order the rise of the periphery what used to be the periphery it's not the periphery anymore it's i mean that's the thing you it it's a bit like change we've already seen you know um britain used to be the center in the 19th century of the west by far the largest economy then germany grew up to parity and america grew to uh dominance that it's it's that kind of shift is happening there needs to be a new world order that acknowledges that but there are a lot of states um who are the beneficiaries of the current phases of economic development uh who if approached as equals would probably be willing to play ball with the west and because of the colonial era share values with the west you know everywhere votes voting is not the issue it's actually things like free press and rule of the law that actually adds to the quality of life um, immeasurably you know i've taught lots of students from the old parts of the soviet union since 1989 and they can't believe how relaxed everyone looks in the west you know because you can't just be screwed over because the person next door knows someone in the party system Uh, you know, rich people have an advantage in the West, of course they do, but it isn't so easy. And there are checks and balances in place that make for uh, a better quality of life. And uh, I do think that's the kind of order that we should be defending. We shouldn't be defending you know, Britain's dominance in the 19th century was a complete accident of having the Industrial Revolution first. You know, it's a complete accident. You can argue about, you know, it's about Protestantism or whatever. It doesn't matter what it's about. It's basically an accident. It was never going to last. Britain is a moderately prosperous, medium-sized country as part of the European landmass. And arguably, that's where we've returned to, and that's our natural position, and it's a complete misunderstanding of the accidents of history to think that that wouldn't happen. Um, but as part of an enlarged block that actually thinks that quality of life is better, uh, if you do have rule of law, if you do have free presses, um, if you do actually think that it's reasonable to tax richer people to a moderate extent to provide enough fallback structures that everyone thinks they've got a stake in this society, Uh, and hence are less likely to turn to alternative sources of support, you know, the kind of mafia state model, um, then you can build, you can expand. In other words, you stop calling it the West. Uh, You expand it to the club of liberal democratic rule of law nations and uh, accept, I'm sure it would be under American hegemony, um, but that's fine, But but it has to treat people as equals and embrace them, I think.
2: So, so, sort of digging into that new world order a little bit in a practical sense, you, you do lay out really interesting and practical solutions. You say debt jubilees, tax reform, UBI, labour laws, Green New Deal, carbon tax, public honesty about imperialism, um, aside from sort of re- retirement age discussions, which may not be completely, I mean, that is a really radical uh, agenda. And, and going back to our chat at the beginning with the sort of people who talk about the fall of Rome and what we should do. Are you, expected, like, are you expecting to, to receive Woke as a, as a label? Are you, are you sort of going to go into the fight against the, the popular idea? Is it, have, you, have you experienced any pushback so far?
0: Well, in, in a sense, we have um, slightly. I mean, we were reviewed in The Telegraph, uh, and they didn't like the joke that I put in about the first Brexit <laughs> as the total collapse of... Uh, the uh, British economy in the immediate post-Roman period. I mean, that was, that was a deliberate tease. It was slightly lighthearted, but it was uh, it was making a serious point. Uh, I think, yeah, that that didn't go down so well. But uh, they said they liked the Roman stuff <laughs> up to that point. Uh, you know, I'm no, I'm my political leanings. I'm no more than an old-fashioned liberal radical, wherever that is put in the modern spectrum. I don't know where to vote half the time, you know. But, you know, that's what I am. I don't believe in socialist utopias and I don't believe that unfettered capitalism delivers wonderfully for everyone because that's when economists are not thinking about power. As a historian, if I think about economists, economists who don't know enough history don't think about power enough, actually. And that's a problem. That's a serious problem. So I would expect to get sort of critiques from that, from those directions. But I do think the, the underlying argument that imperial systems inadvertently develop the areas around them to such an extent that they cease to be able to operate, at least in their old imperial patterns, they might still remain very important players in uh, a, a reordered world, but they can't be dominant imperial centers anymore. I think that's got serious legs, I think it's a serious historical argument. And I think the uh, realities of the demographic transitions are actually so overwhelming that eventually political discourse will have to uh, adjust to confront them. I mean, it's beginning to, it's just beginning to, but it should, you know, this is all, this is all as clear as daylight 15, 20 years ago, but people didn't talk about it.
2: One final question off the back of that, and also what you said earlier about accidents, because there is a temptation, I think, when we're talking about life cycles and sort of imperial logic to, to think that we're all little cogs in this inevitable machine. But as you said, the accident of the British Empire, um, and, and you're very keen at the end to say that there are decisions that are made at every stage here and you know you say that as late as 468 there was still a real, real opportunity to breathe life into the west western roman empire and there is still opportunity in the west so um firstly could you talk about why we should we should keep that level of contingency in this discussion and then secondly more broadly what would you say to someone who says ah just sort of let it happen let let it let it roll let the west die let's see what else happens
0: I think I've probably always been accused throughout my career of being more interested in the systemic points than the contingent points. But uh, so as it were, I tend to think that as it were, 80% of what happens is dictated systemically. So uh, it defines a fairly narrow channel of possibility, the systemic changes, and then the contingent stuff works out where within that defined, fairly defined lane you're going to operate. I've always thought that way. I I think, though not socialist in outlook, I'm fairly Marxist in analytical terms, in terms of thinking about, you know, it's the old Woodward and Bernstein thing from um, All the President's Men, follow the money. Where is the money? Look at where money is collecting. Look at the flows of wealth and how it's being generated because power will be very close. Power follows very closely after flows of money, always. That always works, it will always work, and you can see why it works. So understanding the, the changing economic patterns is, uh, is always absolutely crucial to then thinking about where power is going to fall out. So, but, but you can uh, achieve uh, worthwhile, better, I can't, I can't there isn't no a word worthwhilely uh, whatever the proper adverb would be for that better outcomes or worse outcomes within that defined lane according to what choices you make so the political process does matter and matters seriously so yeah we do need to hold on to that and we need to continue to press uh, our uh, betters to uh, be willing to talk about crucial things, like the ageing nature of the population, and uh, uh, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to address that?
2: Very apt end, I think, to what has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Peter, for for spending time with us.
0: Uh, It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: This episode starred Peter Heather and was produced and presented by Luke Naylor-Parrott. I make this programme with Esme Bright and we have help from Nicole Wong. If you enjoyed the show, you will find more than 200 past episodes on everything from the story of Rome's mad emperor Heliogabulus to James Comey on the state of American democracy, all at howtoacademy.com or your podcasting platform of choice. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.